welcome to the Top Order Podcast. Boys buzzing in the studio tonight, resplendent off our media debut. Check out the press conference on the New Zealand Cricket website. We squeeze a question in to Lockie Ferguson and Kyron Pollard. Great day at the cricket. The series um, 2-0 at the moment. Um, with one game lost to rain, unfortunately, at the Bay Oval. You'd be hoping for better weather in Tauranga. But on this week in cricket, we're going to cover the Women's Big Bash League, the independent chairmanship of the ICC, four trophy live streams. And then we are going to talk about all the cricket that's going on around the world at the moment. West Indies, New Zealand, Australia, India, and England in South Africa, all coming up on the Top Order podcast. Baldy. The Sydney Thunder women have won Big Bash 06, defeating the Melbourne Stars in a pretty low-scoring affair, really, uh, in the final. Uh, Tammy Beaumont, uh, Trennan and Knight and Rachel Haynes bringing home a pretty easy chase in the end for the Sydney Thunder women, restricting Melbourne Stars to 86 for 9 off a full allotment of 20 overs and then running it down pretty easily, 13.4 overs. Stuart, you've got some stats for us. Oh, well, I was just going to say, yeah, it's a pretty disappointing night for the Stars, obviously, you know, pretty dominant performance throughout the the competition. Went in as favourites, as did the Heat against the Thunder in the semi-final. But the Thunder have just come in when it's been good. They've uh, Sammy Joe Johnson has really starred. She got two wickets in the the semi-final, two wickets in the final, and her and um, Shabnam Ismail took two wickets up front against the Stars, and just it was pretty much all over. It all over Red Rover right at the start. They eh? really strangled them up top, didn't they? And made the chase pretty easy in the end. You're not going to win many games starting with 86 off off your 20 overs. So yeah, very impressive. The stars obviously uh, second in the the BBL last year in the men's competition. So yeah, they'll be wanting to to turn that around this year and uh, upcoming men's BBL team. Yeah, the the Melbourne Stars have something about them, don't they? They always seem to be at the pointy end of the regular round robin and as was the case in WBBL 06 Melbourne Stars finishing 8-3 and three, but couldn't quite get home in the final and a local flavour to the player of the tournament Stu. Yeah Sophie Devine excellent performance once again player of the tournament obviously her Perth, Perth Scorchers could not uh, get into the final or, or win the competition but yeah she just proves uh, time and time again particularly in the T20 format that she's just a, a real class player and obviously we're very lucky to have her in a White Ferns jersey. We want to talk a little bit about the ICC? Yeah, absolutely. So, again, local flavour to the podcast. Greg Barclay, New Zealander, named ICC chairman recently and has had some pretty interesting things to say about scheduling. Yeah, so he's come out and said, basically, that there needs to be a review of a few different things. He's talked about the Test Championship and how it probably hasn't worked and, and I guess in particular how COVID has has impacted that and probably brought out some of the more negative sides of that, you know, potentially the fact that we've already talked about things like that they don't all play each other and, and COVID's just made that even worse. He's also come out and talked about how potentially previous regimes have, have looked at ICC tournaments and thought, let's get as much revenue as possible. We'll have eight tournaments and, and that'll be good for, yeah, filling the bank, but maybe not the best for player welfare and, and getting the best competitions out of our players. And he's also talked recently about the that if they want to build cricket in some of these areas like the USA then maybe they're going to have to come out and play some of these tournaments in the USA yeah all interesting points and all things for us to watch as cricket fans and as a cricket public moving forward because we know that scheduling is going to have to change and it's good to see that the ICC chairman is now open to talking about 
not just commercial outcomes, but what's best for the player welfare. And also, as we've talked to a number of guys, Shane Dietz, um, Neil Maxwell, about growing the game in those associate nations. And let's hope that this isn't just lip service, but we actually get something out of it that promotes cricket in those parts of the world. In the States, I mean, they've got a couple of really good cricket grounds as well. I think one in Florida particularly, and um, Border, you're sticking your hand up, so you're going to tell me where the other one is Yeah, mate, well. they've, they've actually just, um, in the last week or so, announced that they're going to build America's first kind of big fit-for-purpose cricket ground in Texas. So they're going to renovate an old college or minor league, maybe double-A baseball stadium into a proper cricket ground in the United States in which they can host, hopefully, some big tournaments. Because the participation stats are there in the US, so you've got to think that those markets are really, really key. And I think someone coming in and making those comments around the big three particularly, they probably have been a little bit protectionist over their revenue potentially would be you know the argument that he's putting up there so certainly those big tournaments not just about the player welfare as well but taking the game to a greater audience which comes back to that olympics debate doesn't it and the ford trophy plenty of live streaming action going on at the moment as well yeah so it's worth mentioning i mean it's only just started and uh, there's only been two games so far one's just finished just as we recording this podcast and uh, obviously pretty good start for Canterbury, ND and Otago have, have won both their two opening matches. But basically the, the point here is that they're, they're starting to live stream a few of those games, not every single game, but wherever it's possible. The I think the Auckland ND game was a full live stream today. You know, it's not it's not the full coverage. It's basically just the camera from from the pooch, which is the, the overhead camera that you get to see on the, the New Zealand Cricket website highlights. but Is that an acronym, Lippy, the pooch? I couldn't actually tell you, but I know that that's been the name for for a long time. So, uh, yeah, someone if someone uh, is listening in and knows exactly why that is and wants to email us in and at uh, top order pod, the topwaterpodcast at gmail.com and tell us, that would be awesome, actually. But, um, yeah, I think just get in behind it. I mean, it's, it's not often we get to see the domestic cricket in New Zealand on TV, we are going to see a little bit of on Spark Sport this year with the whatever that competition is called, and in the Super Smash, and, and yeah, I mean, I think really we're just lucky to lucky to get it on and, and get them behind it. Well, we've got heaps of cricket to catch up on from all around the world in the main segments of this podcast, so that's a pretty good time to leave this week in cricket. We'll be back after the swish, and we'll cover all the goings on around the world. So guys, we wrapped up this week in cricket talking a little bit about that online coverage of the Ford Trophy on the pooch. So yeah, don't forget to email us in and let us know what that might stand for. Even if you don't know, give us a best educated guess. That'd be good uh, good social media banter on the Instagram, Twitter and Facebook feeds and anywhere else you can find a good cricketing podcast. But Spark Sports have got the cricket coverage following on from their Look, I guess successful Rugby World Cup coverage. I think certainly the quality of the app's been pretty good. I've been impressed with it on my Apple TV. It's, it's kind of worked really, really well. But yeah, what, what else have we got to say about the, the coverage and the commentary and, and what that's bringing to New Zealand cricket, um, apart from missing Smithy, obviously? So I, I think that the um, the big, big talking point that I've found this week is people are still not able to access it or not able to, to use it to smoothly watch cricket what that comes down to i don't know it's i don't think it's the infrastructure because i'm able to watch it crystal clear and 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 smoothly so i think that they've done a really good job upgrading since the rugby world cup the people the people that i've seen complaining online and on social media and stuff has really just been around the rural areas um you know i can't speak to to how difficult that's been and obviously that is a, a blow for those people 
um, yeah, that's that's been the main issue from from what I've seen. One of the things I've really enjoyed about the coverage, though, was that it was on TV One. So I've got relatives who live down country who don't have uh, broadband at their house, but they were able to tune into TV One on terrestrial TV and watch that Friday night uh, T20 that we were lucky enough to go and spectate at and, and follow along at, and they were able to watch that on TV One, which is fantastic for those people who can't get uh, high-quality, high-bandwidth broad, uh, high broadband to their house. So let's talk about the actual uh, content and their graphics and overlays etc what do people think i liked them personally and yeah look, I, I guess it's always good that you know there's um plenty of legends of the game to go around when it comes to commentary but yeah it's a pretty good fillet for them to get brendan mccullum in the commentary box and obviously uh, stephen fleming who from a tactical perspective has got to go down as one of the best captains ever to have played the game i'd say um, so his insights in the commentary box, yeah, pretty pretty worthwhile. You mentioned McCullum. I mean, he was on yesterday, even during that rain break. They, I was watching. They they had about half an hour of him just sitting there, him and McMillan and Ian Bishop, just kind of talking cricket. And I, I, I mean, I know that happens all around the world, and I'm, and it happened on Sky and stuff. But I think the fact that they're able to do that and bring that to the cricket coverage sort of gives me a bit of confidence that it's going to be a good experience for us, you know. And, and we're not really going to lose anything in terms of that quality on in commentary. What did you think of the graphics, Raj? Uh, I'm glad you asked, Bing. See, no, I actually really liked it. I, I was I was talking about it when we were sitting there in the box watching the, watching the TV. I think that the graphics are really good. I did have a few pain points with the production of it. Uh, for example, the camera angles, definitely at Eden Park. I don't think they had enough cameras there, but that's something that will get better or improve with, as the um, production matures. The other thing was that uh, a few of the times I noticed the scores were wrong. Uh, when Glenn Phillips was on, they were showing he was on 99, he was actually on 98. Mm. At the start of the second um, second T20, they gave wides to the batsman at the start of it. Just that was little, weird. I thought yeah. there might have been a scoring glitch there that, that Phillips was like three off none when that happened. I can't recall the exact thing, but there has been something going around Twitter this in the last couple of days. Francis Payne noticed on the live scoring that there has been you know a run maybe not allocated to glenn phillips uh, at some point along the line and he did he was on 99 at some point i i don't know the uh, the resolution of that but there is a chance that he did score his hundred a, a ball quicker than than it turned out yeah so there is there is things like that where we're where there it just needs to mature it's definitely a a green production but i think they're doing a great job uh the quality that's coming through is really good i love the setup of spark sport you can go back and watch it anytime i wanted the full replay and the 20 minute extended highlights so i think they're doing a great job let's talk about the cricket so phillips and conway put in some pressure on incumbents in that white ball side um, i'm not sure there's many people in my position they can sign it up um it's just an incredible day um, you don't get them very often, so for me personally, I try to make the most of it as I can. You know, my my whole thing is to try and be an entertainer for the crowd, and in that moment, um, gee, um, in that moment, having the crowds back, you know, we wanted to give them something special. The whole team wanted to give them something special, so um, it was just, you know, it was it was amazing that for me personally, I could be part of it again. So he's recovered pretty quickly from that kneecap incident at Eden Park to crush a pretty quick hundred oh look what what i loved about his innings and, and actually in the first t20 as well and i thought that as soon as he came out to bat he put some momentum into the innings and you know that's such a crucial part of of t20 cricket you can't get bogged down and it, 
what Conway and him did so well in that second game was that they ran really well. And, you know, when he was at the crease, it seemed like New Zealand was going forward. And, and I guess that's something that we can, in the past, get bit, a bit bogged down with in our T20 t- cricket because even someone like Taylor is can be a, a little bit of a slow starter. Even someone like Williams, they kind of get themselves in, whereas Phillips just came in and immediately had, had something to add there. Yeah, you're 100% right. The, the big thing about Glenn Phillips, I think, that he's improved with over the last year or so is that he can play all around the ground. Like you saw, they bowled just short of a length, pulled them away to the boundary, and then they pitch one up and it hit him straight down the ground. Mm-hmm. He, he's, he's developed his game to be able to score in 360 fashion, which is probably a must these days for, for 2020 or even one-day cricket. That's where I think his big improvement is. Moving on to Conway, he looks just so at home already. I know it's only been a couple of digs that he's had in international cricket, but particularly that second game. I mean, we saw the first game at Eden Park, obviously, live and up close. He looked pretty confident going out there to bat, but that second game looked like he'd been part of the furniture for for 10 years, maybe. He was so good in the first game that we were critical of him being dismissed with you know, a couple of runs left and an over to go in the chase. And we were saying, you know, he should have done better than that. And all, all of us forgetting, of course, that this is a guy on international debuts, got 40 off, you know, better than a runner ball, almost all done, all but seeing his side home. And now in the second game, 65 not out off 39 balls, an incredible performance from someone in their first two international games of cricket. Oh, it's super exciting, isn't it, from a, from a New Zealand point of view? I mean, to see him come in and, and you you said he looked like he'd been there for 10 years. He looked so composed and and just paced the innings really well in, in both games. You know, he, he batted well with his partner. He he let Phillips take charge and at times he let Jimmy Neesham take charge in, in that first game. And he was just, he was ruthless on anything short in particular. He played that beautiful shot in the second inning, uh, second T20 over cover. He just played some played all around the ground, like you said, Raj, and, and it's yeah, it's super exciting. The massive thing about me with with Conway was on that pitch at Eden Park, which was so bouncy and quick, he was able to pull the ball in front of square along the ground, mm. which nobody else was able to do on that ground. If they were pulling it, it was in the air. So he looks at home, and I think he's going to be a mainstay in our all three of our formats. And and more pressure on potentially Henry Nichols now that he's he's got some runs on the board, even in those limited overs formats? Yeah, well, it's going to be very interesting. Binks, you may not have seen it on your drive up, but BJ Watling's now under an injury cloud for the test, so uh, it seems very unlikely that he's going to play. So um, Conway has been drafted into the squad. It looks like Blunder will take the gloves for that, that first test, go down to, to five or six and, and or, or even seven. We may get on to, to that discussion later, but he will come. He will go down the order and, and it, Gary Stead has already come out and said that, that Will Young will, you know, if, if that's the case, then Will Young will get op- his opportunity and, and bat up the top of the order. But I think the, the positive thing we've seen, you know, we talk about Phillips, who's someone who was probably on the outer of our World Cup squad, T20 squad, if we had to pick it before this series. He's come in and put some pressure on and now we're seeing this pressure and, and I guess depth in, a, in the, the batting lineup as well that's hopefully going to carry over to the test matches. And if you want to talk about depth building in the New Zealand side, their bowling attack has got tremendous depth now. You know, commentators from the West Indies going, why isn't Lockie Ferguson playing in this test series? Why isn't he part of the test squad? Lockie Ferguson changed what was looking to be a pretty dominant West Indies batting performance three or four overs into that first contest at Eden Park. And just goes to show or goes to remind us as cricket fans what a difference the game of cricket is when it's played at 150 kilometres plus an hour. 
He was able to target the stumps. He bowled a different length to everyone else who'd bowled before him in that game and got tapped by the West Indian batsman. And he was able to change the context of that match, both with his pace and with his accuracy as well. He was an outstanding performer in Game 1, um, backed it up in Game 2. And, and Lockie Ferguson and Kyle Jamison um, putting massive pressure on those New Zealand fast bowlers, as good as they are, to keep their performances up because they're ready to go if, if anyone is out of form or injured. Yeah, look, it's pretty bloody exciting to be at a ground and your first glance after that ball's bowled and you've seen what's happened is to look at the speed gun because you can tell that it's quick. And I, I guess we're blessed at the moment in world cricket that we've got a few guys that, um, are, you know, really pushing that um, radar gun. I know, obviously, from an England perspective, Joffre Archer and Mark Wood have almost, you know, said they've got a little bit of a competition about who's going to bowl quick. Lockie said for him it's about the speed and he's, he gets excited by that. And, yeah, it's bloody fun to watch. Yeah, well, I mean, he was just about that first game when they... I mean, he talked about it afterwards in that press conference, how the the conditions and the wet ground kind of meant that those slower balls and stuff, which he's actually become a real expert at, kind of got taken out of the picture and he just focused on speed. And, yeah, pretty much every ball was over 150. I, I didn't, you know... Someone can correct us on that, but it, it was very, very impressive to watch. I love the comment before the game as well, him saying that he was going to bowl every ball above 150. But do you guys think that this translates to, to test match bowling? I mean, Lockie's, his criticism over the years has been that, you know, his second and third spell are nowhere near as fiery as, as his first. How do you guys see that? Oh, I mean, I'm excited to see it. I, I I think that's the thing, isn't it? You know, he's now just been selected. They've put him in one of these New Zealand A-sides that's going to play a, a longer form. And I think, you know, he's talked all, always, I guess, throughout, for the, you know, in the lead up to when he was... He, when he made his debut in, in Australia, it obviously ended with an injury. He's talked about wanting to play test cricket and, and these are going to be his opportunities to show that he can do it and that he can bowl that durable kind of speeds throughout the game. And, and uh, I mean, when he was bowling that speed and things in that those, those T20 games, it did make me think this would be super exciting to watch in a test match. I, I guess kind of using the Joffre Archer comparison again, your captain's got to know how to use that kind of bowler though. So are you going to say to him, mate, you are only going to bowl three, maybe four overs in a spell, and we're only going to get three spells out of you today. So you, you might only bowl 10, 11 overs in a day's cricket. Or are you going to say to him, like with other seamers around the world, you need another sort of, I guess, string to your bow, the, the ability to come in and bowl wobble seam or come in and hit the deck at maybe a little bit reduced pace, but, you know, target that rib cage, like a Wagner, for example. I'm not comparing them for pace, obviously. But it's that management thing and how he fits into a four or five person attack that's going to be the key. You mentioned Wagner there. He's the ultimate foil for a guy like Lockie Ferguson because he bowls all day. He bowls all day, tough balls into the wicket, difficult lengths to to pick up and play against. So if New Zealand were going to play Wagner and Ferguson together, they're the ultimate kind of foil for each other because you can, you know, use Lockie Ferguson in a much more strike bowler, Shah Bakhtar kind of way rather than using him in a kind of Michael Kasperitz way and making him bowl 30 overs in a day. I mean, as exciting as it is, he is he is sort of fifth, I think, on that pecking order, though, in, in Test cricket because Jameson started so well. And, you know, as we talked about last week, those three seamers that we have have just been expert for a number of years. So there's a chance that he is just going to have to wait out his, his time. But, yeah, I mean, hopefully we will get to see him. And, and you know, if he can deliver stuff like that, like you said, he... he he changed the the game because of the way he was able to just put doubt in people's minds and, and they couldn't attack him the way they were attacking everyone else. 
Should we, we should we rewind a little bit and talk about this West Indies performance? Down 2-0 in the T20 series. Probably outplayed pretty compre- comprehensively in the second game. But in that first game, they were right in the contest for a good part of that chase. Yeah, look, they certainly were. I think one of the things that you look at when you go down the team sheet, there's not a lot of household names on that team sheet from an ODI perspective. We, we talked about being really excited to see Pollard up close and in the flesh, which we were lucky enough to do. But Jeez, and he wasn't he impressive. He was incredible. Oh, man, he was a man mountain, wasn't he? But when you look at the list of people that are potentially missing, you know, Andre Russell's just got 60-odd off 20 balls or 19 balls in the... LPL and it sounds like a it sounds like a drink from you know slightly north of uh, of Auckland. You you've got Gail, Noreen, Russell himself, uh, Bravo, Holder, Lewis, Simmons, all not in that ODI or that limited overs squad. So that puts a little bit of perspective on that first performance that they stayed you know in the game for so long with you know some lesser known um, lesser known players. You know, I think if you're a West Indies fan, you're obviously not overreacting to this performance at all because of the names that you've just you've just said and, and I think from a New Zealand perspective we do have to keep that uh, in our heads as well and think you know we're not we're not just world beaters because we've gone out and performed really well in two games I think as sort of all the coaches have really talked about all these games really these two twenty games for the next six months to, to nine months are going to be about building to these tournaments and I think from a New Zealand perspective, building that depth has been what's really impressive. The West Indies are going to have to look at their situation and go, who who are we actually you know, impressed from their performances here? And, and I guess what can we take out of that? I think the thing that will disappoint the West Indies management and the West Indies setup is that their fielding and their effort in the field and their execution of catching and runouts and just things like backing up wasn't quite to the standard that they would normally set for themselves as an incredibly athletic and very gifted physically um, cricket team. I feel like that's the area that they can improve the most when they go and play these 350 over games is to step up the standard of that fielding and put a little bit more pressure on those New Zealand batters running between wickets and in terms of the catching. I think the management should be should be upset with how they played, but I'm going to give them a little bit of a out here. Maybe I'm getting a bit soft on them, but uh, those conditions, apart from being as foreign to the West Indies conditions as possible, they're foreign to actually playing cricket. Mm. It was very wet, very cold. Uh, I'm surprised that we got two of those games in from those conditions. So while they are professional cricketers and they should always turn up, I can understand to an extent why their performance wasn't where it should be. Yeah, and I guess the other thing is, and we don't necessarily know the answers of this uh, sitting at this podcast table this evening, is what they were able to do when they were training in isolation as well. Did they need to get their skills with bat and ball up to scratch? And, you know, they didn't get enough time doing those kind of basic things. Um, because you know they have been an electric fielding side. Um, I still think they're a you know a genuine contender for that T Twenty World Cup because they've got plenty of class around. So yeah, I, I certainly won't be uh, writing them off. I might even have a cheeky little fiver on them as well. At full strength, they're an incredible cricket team, and if they can field and bowl like we know that they can, with guys like Cottrell and O'Shane Thomas leading that attack, they're a real dangerous cricket side. And I think the ODIs, if they can lift their fielding, will be a lot closer than the T Twenties. Well, there's no ODI, so we won't worry about those. But let's but let's look forward to the tests. <laughs> let's look forward to the tests because these are this West Indies side in particular is a completely different side. You know, they're they're pretty much going to be the side uh, with the, with a couple of exceptions that that played 
well, it might, there might actually be no exceptions. With this, with the side that's been playing against the New Zealand A side in uh, in Queenstown over these past few few days, they've had you know the last game in particular was just an absolute run fest. Craig Brathwaite put on 246. Darren Bravo, in particular, we touched on him last week about how he's going to be a really important cog for the West Indies coming back into the side after missing that England series, and he's been in the runs. So I think, you know, even for, okay, New Zealand dominated that T20 series from the little cricket that we had, things all start again on zero uh, on, on Thursday. Yeah, look, I think Bravo is definitely the you know the key to their batting lineup. Potentially missed that England tour as we spoke about. I think on a, a couple of podcasts ago. I also really like the look of Blackwood as well. Um, really looks like he can play, particularly you know when he gets uh, gets his eye in. And Brooks looks a fantastic um, player as well. So they're starting to form that little bit of a, a nucleus, dare I say, of a batting lineup because that's certainly been one of the areas with so much T20 cricket and so much T20 focus for the West Indies over the course of the last five or six years. They haven't really established that kind of test lineup that, you know, they were so proud of in the days of your, you know, Chandra Pauls and your Laras and your Carl Hoopers, but they look as if they're building a squad of young batters who actually want to go out and perform in Red Bull cricket. And that's, you know, that's exciting to go with the pace that they've got in their camp as well. That's what, make Dar- that's what makes Darren Bravo so important to that batting lineup because all those young guys are incredibly capable, but they need a guy to bat around. And Darren Bravo, if he's going to, if he's going to help West Indies to be super competitive in this series, he's going to need to be the guy who bats for long periods of time along with Brathwaite so that these younger guys like Brooks and Roston Chase and Jermaine Blackwood and to a lesser extent Dowrich and Holder down the order can bat with those guys to build big totals because they're going to need to bat long periods of time and make New Zealand work hard in the field in order to be able to put their batsmen under pressure with the bowling attack that the West Indies have. Yeah, with the West Indies batting. During my cricketing career, actually, whenever the batsmen were out of form, they'd tee me up to bowl to them for half an hour. (laughs) I'm hoping we didn't do that to the West Indies batsmen by preparing these flat pitches. But uh, let's get on to the New Zealand team. There's a few permutations with Conway coming in to the side now. Does Stu, do you want to break that down for us? Yeah, well, I think as we touched on before, what will happen if Watling doesn't play is that Blunder will take the gloves. He'll go down the order, probably bat six. Can I just ask a quick question on Watling? What's wrong with him? Is there a chance he plays as a batter? There is a chance. No, no. He's got a hamstring injury, so, yeah, he'll be be in or out. They're they're, they're talking about uh, giving him until the the morning or until the evening the night before, and uh, and then they'll make their decision. But, yeah, the the reports coming out of the camp today suggest that he won't play. Um, The fact that they've brought in Conway to to be a, a cover, yeah, I think it's all leaning towards him not playing. And, and that will mean, as I said, Blunder will take the gloves. They've they've come out and said Will Young will, will get his chance, which I'm really stoked for Will Young. You know, I know that all of us are pumped up to see Conway get his opportunity. And, and I know that the New Zealand public uh, in particular is. But I think Will Young, as, we, as we've touched on, he deserves that opportunity. And, and he's, you know, he's just scored 130 against them in the, the New Zealand A game. So... It's, he's going to get that now, and and you know it, it's up to him. I think he'll be avoiding anything like um, he won't be going out for a, a curry with prawns or anything. Will he the night before the game? He will be sitting in his room making sure he's a bit of dry toast and plenty of Powerade. Yeah, look, you know he's yeah he's obviously been in this situation before. But on the you know the other I guess decisions that have got to be made: do we play a spinner? 
uh, Gary Stead has come out and said that he does like to go in. You know, it, it is unlikely that they would go into the game without a spinner. They will look at the conditions. Sorry, was that Gary Stead or you that said that? No, well, no, I've said that, I've said that they. I actually think they shouldn't play a spinner in New Zealand. You know, I in this in this situation, particularly with Mitchell Santner being the person that they've got there. To me, he's just a holding bowler in New Zealand. So I would I would play the four seamers and, and just go for it. Well, in this uh, COVID generation that we're living in, I think we need to check your temperature um, after that <laughs> uh, that comment. But so no spinner for you, and that's the permutation you would be you'd be looking at. Yeah, look, I mean, um, what do you think, Raj? I'm really, really wrapped for Will Young. He's been on the radar for a few years now, and, and as we talked about in the last pod, he has been scoring runs as well. He's the first man, uh, first cab off the rank, I should say. So I'm, I'm looking forward to him and hope he's really successful. But what I do want to talk about, I'm going to throw back to Stu here, is what could the team look like with Devin Conway also playing? Yeah, well, look, that's another option, I guess. They could play all six batsmen, that they've got in the squad with Conway coming in at, at six, perhaps Blundell going down to seven, and then just play four bowlers. Whether that's whether you include Santner in that and he bats eight, and then you've got three of those seamers, or whether you just go with the four seamers. I mean, obviously that does leave you. It means that someone like Daryl Mitchell misses out there, so you don't have your your all rounder, and you're essentially left with four bowlers and Kane, who seems very reluctant to bowl. So. You know, potentially that leaves you a little short. I think the fact that Neil Wagner is in the squad potentially gives you that opportunity because he can be that holding bowler. But then on the flip side of that, you've got Neil Wagner just coming back from injury. You know, how is his body and and can he bowl, you know, for a whole session like he's been able to in the past? Yeah, I mean, I I really like that, that squad. And the reason is because the question with all test matches is can your bowlers take 20 wickets and i believe that even with those four bowlers we can take 20 wickets as well as have seven or oh, six specialist batsmen to score the runs so i like that makeup and kane williamson will have to bowl a few overs here and there i think that's a really strong side what do we think about the impact on blundell though we were talking about it last week and he was going to get his opportunity to open the bat and have the conversation around the gloves so if you look at that New Zealand A side that's played, I think um, Cleaver was the keeper. Cam Fletcher's come in for the next A game um, for the longer form. So, you know, th- there's a couple of people around. Do you think there was ever a thought that they would go, actually, no, we're going to stick here with plan A of Blundell at the top of the order and b- bring a keeper in? I don't think so. I think the succession plan is, is definitely Blundell at this stage, just given the fact that he's been such a good uh, he's taken every opportunity. You know, he he made his debut as a keeper when Watling was out uh, against Pakistan, I think it was, and scored 100 at the base. And so, you know, he he's done everything asked of him, much in the way that Will Young has been done has done everything asked of him. So, I, I think they definitely see Blunder as the future of that keeping position. I mean, Watling when they they talked about his hamstring injury, it it threw his age out there, and he's 35. So, you know, obviously you can keep going a bit longer when you're a you know. MS Donan. Yeah, but, you know, I, I don't know how much he, he does have left, um, but he's been a fantastic performer, so I'm certainly not calling for his retirement. Well, look, that wraps up the look at the West Indies at New Zealand series. Still lots of cricket to play this summer, albeit no ODIs, Baldy, no, no 50 over stuff, mate. Oops. It's cricket, but not as you know it. You I'm know, it always so used, used to be. To, I'm just so used to ODIs being part of our calendar. But no, look, we're going to give you a big uh, a big rev up now. So let's talk about the Australians. No, no, um, I'm just being told in my ear that we're doing. So 
What am I doing? Going to a break. Banksy doesn't want any swishes today. So apparently Raj is on some form of commission for the number of swishes that we use. So we will be back after the break to talk about Australia, India. Here's the swish. Welcome back to the podcast. So we're going to talk all things Australia, India. Raj just had a dream that Virat Kohli was coming back. He's just awoken um, to find out that that's not the case. But Baldy, let's talk about this Australian batting dynasty. Dynasty is a big topic this week. Well, hardly a dynasty. It's only it's only two games. Um, Thanks. Thanks, mate. That was very good. Um, look, Australia have found some form in their batting lineup and they've and they've managed to do it off the back of some fantastic batting from from Stephen Smith. He talked about finding his hands at the end of his arms two days before <laughs> the first game. And surprise, surprise, they are at the end of his arms. And, and he was incredible. Uh, back to back 62 ball hundreds, uh, third fastest ever for an Australian behind James Faulkner and Glenn Maxwell. But India allowed him to dominate the game and they allowed Warner and Finch to get away to another set of flying starts uh, in terms of wickets lost in the power play. And Smith, Maxwell and Labuschagne bringing home some massive, massive titles for Australia up into the 370s, 380s in Sydney and Canberra. Not easy to do on big grounds and Australia's bowlers just good enough to hold off India really um, and defeat the, the Indians for a couple of wins in the ODI series. And is Labuschagne the key to that? order you know that glue that he provided batting at four I mean that's just given the platform for guys like Maxwell to really go bananas it looks a different batting lineup to, to probably the, the last yeah the, the last little while for the Australians with him holding that together in the middle two things look really good for me for Australia in terms of that batting lineup one is that they're getting away to a fantastic start with with Warner and Finch although we'll get to Warner's injury and what impact that might have on the Australian cricket team in a little bit but one they're getting off to a great start and two yes Manus Labuschagne and to an extent you know a great 100 off 60 balls from Stephen Smith will always put you in a great position but the fact that Manus can bat and pace in innings and he talked about that after the second game being able to come in and pace in innings and making sure that he's guiding Australia. And what that allows us to do is utilise Glenn Maxwell to the maximum effect that we possibly can. Having him at number seven or in that floating role to come in with 60 or 55 balls to face, he, I think he faced about 29 balls in one match and about 40 or 50 in the other, allows him to bat with maximum confidence. He's not coming in like he had to against England at, you know, 100 for five and having to dig Australia out of a hole. He was able to come in and put the icing on all what was already a pretty delicious cake for Australian cricket fans. You touched on uh, the the opening partnership. I mean, I th I think that's where the platform's set up, right? I mean, yeah. you know, they've been phenomenal. I, I saw that they now average Warner and Finch now average a hundred against India in ODIs. They've scored fourteen ODI hundred partnerships. I mean, that's the kind of thing. If you, if you've got that going on, every single other batter can come in and play with freedom. And yeah, that, you know, that Warner injury as much as. You know, the ODIs are almost done here. That's a huge loss to them, particularly in this third ODI that's going to come out tomorrow. I, I think that uh, Aaron Finch just hasn't got enough enough plaudits for what he's been doing. I, I did hear a great interview with him, just going back to Steve Smith's hands. Uh, Steve Smith was in quarantine above him for the last week or two weeks. And um, he said he'd wake up at 2 a.m. in the morning and hear Steve Smith pounding away in the room above him. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's very much a Steve Smith thing to do yeah. to repeat it to get two hundreds of the exact same balls in a row, isn't it? Like it's a very Steve Smith thing, the the repetitive nature of, of how he's gone about things. And just Aaron Finch, just going back to him, 
I was talking to you, Baldy, and we were saying that his record as an opener is better than Gilchrist in almost half the games. Incredible. He now has more one-day international hundreds than the great Adam Gilchrist. And you're right, Raj, he's only barely played half the games that Gilly played. So he really doesn't get enough credit uh, for his white ball batting, um, Aaron Finch. And, and the other half of the products I want to give him is the way that he has tactically been in the field and with his bowling changes over these last two games. He's been spot on with his field sets and plans to his bowlers, and he just seems to have that Midas touch when he brings somebody in, how they got Coley last night uh, when he was just looking like he was about to take off in the late 80s, was uh, won the game for them. Yeah, he feels like a real old-fashioned captain to me. He's got, you know, a little bit of instinct. He's obviously listening to the analysts and, and going in with some well-formulated plans, but he just looks so calm, almost sort of Dhoni-esque in his manner um, in, in terms of marshalling those troops. And as Baldy, I think, said, making those, you know, right right decisions, that kind of Midas touch piece. I think it's a, a huge point here that made, you know, around the tactics and the and the conditions. I mean, it, it was making me sick talk about all how, you know, how amazing the Australian batters are. And, you know, we could do that for a long time. But I think what they've done so well is that they've, they've I mean, obviously they're at home, so they don't having to adjust to these conditions. But it, they, they've got the tactics right. India's really been struggling to adjust to these conditions. They if have, we look yeah. at something, someone like Chahal and Zampa, compare those two. The speeds that they've bowled at, Chahal's bowled a bit slower. That's his natural movement. He's he's just been attacked straight away. The Australian bowlers have just not let him settle. Whereas someone like Adam Zampa, he bowls a little bit quicker. He knows exactly how to bowl in these conditions, and he's really caused problems for the Indians. Yeah, Zampa bowled a lot of wrong ones in that spell as well. He bowled a lot of balls out the back of the hand, a lot of sliding delivery. So he was able to mix up his variations really, really effectively. He benefits from bowling on big grounds. Let's be fair, Adam Zampa, he bowls a lot better on big grounds than on small grounds. But that's true of, of any quality leg spinner. The thing that surprised me in terms of the tactics is how much criticism Virat Kohli has got as a result of the the kind of tactical decisions that he's made. I think he's made very similar decisions in the past and not been criticised so heavily because his bowlers have executed a lot better. I feel like Jasper Brummer will be disappointed with his own output in terms of this series. Sure, he only got two overs up front when normally he'd get three, maybe even four at the top of that innings and didn't give himself a chance to be effective, but he didn't execute well. So Coley had, had to make a choice. Hooked him, tried somebody else, it didn't work. Look, let's be honest. That this, they're not going to be the first, they aren't the first bowling unit to be have their ass handed to them in Australia, and they won't be the last. I think you're right. The key was Boomerah in New Zealand when they came here last year. New Zealand kept him wicketless mm. through that series. Mm. Same things happening here. I do want to talk about Hardik Pandya though. He he bowled really well in that second game. It shows his value. What a player he is. The ninety he got in the first game, and then coming in and bowling those cutters and just stop the momentum. Yep. that the other Indian bowlers couldn't, but uh, unfortunately not enough. Able to bowl variations and take pace off at a time where they really needed to, and, and he's been effective, and let's hope that he can continue to recover from his back injury and perform well for that Indian team, because they're going to really need him if they're going to be effective in T20 and, and ODI World Tournaments that are coming up. Well, it adds a different balance to the side, doesn't it, with, with Pandya, because they were going in, in that first ODI, they only had five bowlers pretty much, so anyone struggling, they didn't have anywhere to go, whereas Pandya came in, and then they had another option, something else to go to. And, and that's the major criticism coming out of India is the balance. You, you mentioned the word balance. In that first game, they had Hardik there as the, the fourth down or the sixth batsman where they could have been playing someone like uh, Shubman Gill or, or Pandey, I believe, is there. Manish Pandey. Yeah. Um, so so that, that's the big thing that's coming out of, of India in terms of balance. But uh, you can see when, when he bowls, he needs to be in that side.
the thing for me, and we've touched on it as well, is with Finch and, and Coley, there's very few people, I think, that can be three format captains, particularly with the schedule, the way that it's packed. So even if Coley is there, I just think Sharma, and I know Sharma's not in the side right now, he's obviously out injured at the moment, but he's just heads and shoulders, it appears, above Coley as a, as a white ball, particularly a T20 um, captain, and I think we saw that for the Mumbai Indians. So... I think that might just take that little bit of pressure off off Coley from a you know from a batting perspective. Uh, doesn't necessarily help the balance of the side, but um, you would say that both of them would get into the best eleven in in any sense. But that, you know that has been a gulf that captaincy between the two sides. I read the schedule. There are T20 games <laughs> to follow. The, the final one day, Australia leading India 2-0 in the one-day series. And then there are T20 matches before we play Test Cricket on December 17. What do India need to do to bounce back against Australia to arrest what looks to be a pretty one-sided one-day series so far? Well, they have to they have to bowl better, don't they? I mean, they have to adjust to these conditions and actually get something out of these excellent bowlers that they have. You know, we talked... Talked about Shami and Boomer and Chahal being, you know, super performers in the IPL. And, and you know, if you look at the, the T20 rankings, they're all very high and, and excellent performers, but they just haven't been able to to get wickets. I mean, Raji talked about Boomer before, how he hasn't taken wickets recently. He's played eight ODI games, bowled 76 overs in, t- in 2020, and he's only taken three wickets. I mean, 2020 has been a different situation for him. He has been performing at that at that level, but... You know, they're just going to have to get wickets and take some of these guys. They're going to have to put Australia under pressure with the bat. 100% right. Chasing over sevens in both games, they've actually scored at a decent rate. And yeah, they've looked they, good. They would have chased m- most of those scores down yeah. uh, in, in any other situation, but they have to bowl better. I mean, Navdeep Saini, I really love him as a bowler, but all he did was run in at 142 Ks, seam bolt upright, and that just meant it flew quicker to the boundary. So just a bit of variation and a bit of, bit of smart bowling to come into it, I think. We mentioned it in the New Zealand West Indies series as well, but the fielding's played a part as well in this, you know, couple of games so far. Big golf again. where Massive golf and difference uh, in execution in the fielding. And Coley particularly will have prided India and has really driven the guys to become that fielding side, but we've not we've not seen it so far on this tour. That's the real area where India can close the gap against Australia because their batting is good. They made 308 and 338 in those two ODIs. Um, They can close the gap by executing better in the field. That will allow their bowlers to build a little bit more pressure. They've got to be smarter as well, though, don't they? Because Australia's come in with these plans quite clearly. So Shreyas Iyer, for example, they've come in and just bowled short to him and he hasn't really had an answer. I, you know, he's been stepping away after the first a couple of balls and just trying to slash it over point and and in situations where you know just settle down, take a couple of balls to get yourself in. I think they have kind of got under the skin of the Indians by attacking them in their you know potentially weak weaker areas. So India is going to have to respond there and find some weaknesses in this Aussie side. The analyst has earned his his pay this week, hasn't he? Because Hugely. finding that that uh, chink in Shreyas's batting technique or, or, or skill set, uh, just it arrested momentum in that batting lineup when they lost. Who was it before him? They lost. Um, Agarwal. No, when they lost Agarwal, uh, Coley was out there with them. They looked like they were going to sort of get going, and then Shreyas was backing away, trying to put everything over over point. Uh, aside from the fact it doesn't instill 
you know, your team with much confidence that you're doing that. It's just not something that's going to go well in the long term. Baldy, you touched on Warner's injury before. How is this going to change things? I mean, maybe, you know, the, the T20s, there's been a lot of people, I think um, Labuschagne's put his hand up to open in the third ODI. There's plenty of other openers that can, can get a go for Aussie in the T20s. But, you know, if this extends to the Test Series, how's that going to change things for Australia? Yeah, I don't think the Australian selectors will be too concerned about who opens in the short-form stuff. I think there are plenty of guys, like you said, that can do the job. Matthew Waits probably at the top of that list, I would imagine, yeah. of the guys who aren't already in the squad. Obviously, Stoinis, if he's fit, can come in and open the batting in short-form cricket as well. So there's no real issue there. The problem that we've got is going into the Test Series against India starting December 17 in Adelaide. If Warner doesn't play... Australia have to find a replacement for a guy who averages 65-plus at home. And it becomes a question of not, does Joe Burns or um, Will Bukowski complement or play second fiddle to a guy who's dominating um, pretty much all comers over the last couple of years in home conditions? They have to be the leader of that Australian batting lineup from an opening batting perspective. And I think if you... Um, if you look at it that way, a guy like Marcus Harris comes into the mix as well as Pekovsky, as well as Burns. And you would think that two of those three will play um, as opening batters in that first test in Adelaide. And I think now Burns and Pekovsky are pretty much locked and loaded if, if Warner doesn't play. But there's going to be a whole different set of pressure on those two guys because they're going to have to carry the load. Manus is in good form. Smith is in good form. So that helps the Australian side. I don't think they should tweak the batting lineup to pick one of the guys in the middle order to open the batting. I think that's always fraught with danger. You've got to have, for me, a genuine opening batsman. And the only thing that concerns me about Will Pukowski is he's only had two bats as an opening batsman. He's a tremendous top order player. But realistically, he's only had two bats at state level on wickets that were really conducive to batting. Sure, he's made buckets of runs and there's no question about his batting talent. Now that he has to carry that opening batting for Australia, that's going to be a different set of pressure on his shoulders. I actually think that David Warner is a must-have in, in that test series to get fit. Not only is the runs he's scoring, but the attitude he brings. Absolutely. Just, just that firebrand sort of attitude. Uh, I think that you look back 18 months, we were discussing this, and we didn't quite get the question out to um, Bretig when we were talking to him, but nothing the, the Australian bowling lineup is exactly the same as it was in 2018 compared to now so I think that David Warner Steve Smith these guys who have come back in since then those are the guys who are actually going to put you in a position of dominance yeah. uh, Warner especially with with his attitude the, the only thing I'd throw in there and look this is look a, a little bit of a, a diversion probably from the conversation that we're going to have but I look at the England side when, you know, Cook and Strauss went and then Cook was going to go and it was evident that he was going to go for a long, long period of time. And they'd not really got the other opener bedded in properly. And I think Australia, Warner's not getting any younger. I think he's 35 now. He, he's said in the press on a number of occasions, he's been probably pretty close to hanging up the boots um, for various reasons on and off the field over the course of the last few years. So... If Labuschagne wants to open the batting, if he genuinely thinks that that's where he wants to fit, I think you've probably got to listen to that as an option. Whether or not he's done it or not, there's plenty of guys that have had to come in and take a spot in a test side that they might not have been suited for for their provincial side or their state. So I think if he's genuinely saying, hey, I want to throw my hat into the ring, it's something that the selectors would have to look at. 
But I think I agree with you, Border, that it, it shouldn't be a short-term thing. It shouldn't be a let's just bump him up and we'll shuffle the middle order. I, I think it is a specialist position and one that, you know, warrants those kind of people to, to play in it. Yeah, and I mean, his coach did it to a tremendous effect. Justin Langer started his test career as a number three, number four batter, ended up opening and was a tremendously successful player. So if the guy's got the right temperament, and it sounds like Manas has got the right temperament, wants to bat for long period of, periods of time, yeah, there's, there's probably no issue with him doing that. I think that there are good opening bats in Australia who can fill that role. Marcus Harris, Joe Burns, um, Cameron Bancroft, Jake Weatherald has been doing a, a good job for South Australia. And we're also forgetting Nick Maddinson in that mix as well. So Will Pekovsky is probably the name that I've not mentioned there. I want him batting at three for Australia, Pekovsky. I want to see... a pretty handy number three called Stephen Smith. Yeah, he bats at four. Oh, well... So yeah. we've got, I mean, any, any which way you slice it, all of those guys are capable. If Manus is the best batsman of that group, then, then fantastic. But like you say, Adam, it's got to be a long-term play. I, I think we can probably talk about the test stuff, and we're going to talk about it a bit in the future. The, the one thing I did just want to touch on before we left Australia, India, is, boy, it was fun to watch Virat Kohli bat. I mean, honestly, when that second ODI, you just saw his quality and and. It, the Test Series is going to be much weaker for not having him there just because he is such an awesome batter. I mean, I just want – when he got out and there was 15 overs to go and when he was there, it felt like they might be able to chase down 370. And I just felt really sad as a neutral watching that game. Wouldn't it be great to have another 10 overs here of Coley going because he's he's just quality. And, and you know, the, those Aussie bowlers, we've talked about how good they are, but he can combat them and – Man, it's it's a real shame that he's not going to be there for that test series apart from that first test. And it's his attitude, isn't it? It's his attitude to batting and his attitude to, I am not going to take a backward step to this Australian attack. I'm going to take it to them and I can take any of them apart. And he can, and all those other Indian batsmen can too, but you sometimes question whether or not they have that self-belief that no matter the situation they can be the best player on the field. And we know that Virat Kohli can, and it's just going to be a real shame not to see him for those for those three tests. But I think that there are plenty of other guys who can step up. It was interesting. The commentators mentioned it a couple of times. We didn't get to see that first uh, first game because we were at the, the cricket, but he was a bit cavalier from what I hear. Went out and was a bit reckless. But in the second, second uh, one-dayer, just to see the focus in his eyes, and he set himself up to get a big score, and uh, unfortunately lost concentration there towards the end. But uh, it would have been great to see him go on and score some big runs. Well, look, I think that just about wraps up talking about this Australia-India series. We're going to get to the T20s and the Tests much later in the summer, all three formats for Baldy. By contractual obligations, here comes another <laughs> swish, though, and then we'll be back um, to talk England-South Africa. Here it comes. And we're back. We're going to talk about my countrymen. So England are in South Africa. A 2-0 scoreline so far in the series. There's some turmoil off the field for South Africa. And look, I guess it's not uh, much better for them on the field as well at the moment. Johnny Bairstow powering the side to a very impressive victory um, in the first game and a bit more of an all-round performance, albeit in a slightly lower scoring game um, in the second uh, second game. Problems with the batting order, I think, particularly when you look at franchise cricket um, and Butler at the top of the order and Stokes has been at the top of the order and then you've got Roy and you've got Bairstow and you've got Bantam and you've got a guy called Alex Howes who can't even get on the plane. You've got lots and lots of options um, in that top order um, and the fortunes of the Curran brothers as well, but we'll talk about all that. What's caught your eye, guys? Well, I think the batting line, it is really difficult, isn't it? I don't know how you quite manage these. I mean, 
these guys can all obviously do these these multiple roles, but I think at some point you do maybe even have to take ownership yourself, right, as a player and go, this is where I see myself and actually keep doing that role because they are very distinct roles, right? If you're opening the batting, coming out and attacking up front in that power play or, you know, coming in at the end and trying to finish and actually target a certain score. So, yeah, it's it's an incredibly hard one to balance. And I, and I think, you know, we've talked about it with a few different people lately about the balance of T20 cricket and how you go about, you know, matchups and all these things. But it, the T20 game is getting a lot more complex than just picking your best lineup these days. I want to ask you a question, Binksy, actually. I really liked watching um, Milan bat. I really, you know, focused on him this series and he, he looked really good. My question is about Owen Morgan. Batting at six, is, is that not a waste in some way? Yeah, look, I think when we kind of look at these things in isolation, we, we can make some judgments. We can say, you know, Bairstow should open the batting, Stoke should open the batting, Butler should open the batting, Morgan should come in earlier. We talked about it through the IPL, and then we talked to some of the coaching staff, and they talked about their rationales for the reason that some of those players floated and some of them came in, and a lot of it was about matchups. The one thing I think I can guarantee from what I've seen of Owen Morgan over the past five or six years as captain of this white ball side is this won't be being done because of an individual's preference or because of a short-term set of circumstances. There will be a plan here. He's not necessarily going to tell us what that plan is. I've got one that I'll throw into the mix as a potential though. Joe Root's nowhere near this T20 side at the moment. Barring a freak where Stokes got smashed all over the park, Joe Root would have been the man of the match in that World Cup final and taken England to a T20 um, victory against the West Indies for an absolutely amazing innings. He comes into the reckoning for me. They're actually saying we can keep him on ice because he's got proven class to come in if we need um, that option. And then I think they're trying the same thing with some of these other guys your Stokes and your Bairstows and your Butlers, they want them to be able to do different roles so that according to situations and according to matchups and according to injuries, they have got people that know multiple roles within that side. Has Darwood Milan played too well, though, to bring Root into the situation? I feel like, you know, he's kind of the one that would drop out, right? But he's the best T20 better in the world by rankings. Yeah, look, he is. So, you know, that, that does throw a little bit of a spanner in the potential works. But but look, I think, it, you know, if you if you were Owen Morgan, if you were England, if you were any side and you said, hey, we're going to give you 16 guys that can get into 11, you'd probably say yes to that because, you know, we all know what happens when you tread on a freak cricket ball um, before a game. It, you know, it can affect a series or, a, you know, a major tournament. So, look, I, I think there's all of those kind of things that come um, to play. Um, for me, it's actually, you know, the, the sort of bowling that's actually becoming a lot clearer throughout the course of this series. And um, I mentioned it in the in the preamble, but um, the emergence and probably that switch now in terms of Sam Curran, who wasn't really, you know, talked of in white ball um, formats ahead of his brother until this IPL, uh, did pretty well uh, for the Super Kings. And now, you know, is there a changing of the Curran guard in that, uh, that England lineup as well? Well, look, Binksy, I've got to question you on it here. I mean, you... 
you uh, you said that Sam Curran is the next Jack Callis, and a throwaway comment on on Saturday night when we we're all together. You did wind that back significantly once we uh, actually laid out Jacques Callis's stats and uh, told you that perhaps he's the best cricketer of all time. But you know, can you kind of explain why you see Curran as such a an important cog in in England? I guess in all three formats, and and you know what makes him so special in your eyes. Well, look, I should just caveat this by saying that this was us spending our um, quiz uh, winnings on a, a pretty big all-day session. And I w- it was pretty late in the day where I made that very, very bold comment. I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to retract all of it, though. What I meant was that I think that Sam Curran will become a batsman who bowls. Um, you know, he'll become a batting all-rounder. He showed in the IPL that he has got, um, a, a, a fantastic temperament, and B, some real talent as well. And I think when you've got that temperament, we look at the likes of a Labashane, we look at the, you know, the likes of a Steve Smith where their temperament takes over. The technique is, you know, is a small part of that. And I think he's a really, really gritty cricketer. Um, he wants the ball in his hand as well. You know, um, people have said he's only effective, uh, you know, 82, 83 miles an hour when he gets to swing it. it I, I think he's proved throughout the course of the IPL and this short um, stint over in South Africa that that's not necessarily the case because he's got um, a bit of he got but got a bit of a cricket brain on him. Um, so look, I, I just really like the look of him as as a cricketer. I think he's got a very very old head on his relatively young shoulders, and and he's very very gritty. Whether he gets to twelve thousand runs and three hundred Test wickets, but we, you know we'll have to see. But I, look, I, I guarantee we're here in ten years' time and we're talking about a guy with a pretty decent Test record. I mean, switching to to South Africa now, there hasn't been a huge amount of highlights for them. We talked a little bit, uh, you know, offline about Nokia not playing that that first game, and and I guess even when we talked about the series last week, we talked about where are the runs going to come from. Have there been any bright lights for South Africa? For me, George Lindy's been been pretty good. He made his debut, I think, in that first match, and and looked pretty good as a spinner. I think. From my perspective, Shamsi and Lindy are definitely up and pretty much everyone else is down. Um, if you have a look at on balance, Decock can't do everything. Like he can't he can't captain the side and wicket keep and make all the runs and do the press conferences and drive the team bus and do all the massages and put all the gear away and pack it all up and put it, you know, put it in the coach to go to the next game. And he certainly can't cook breakfast the next morning. He's being asked to do a hell of a lot for that South African side. And unfortunately, he's not getting the kind of support that we would expect to see from a team that has traditionally been a powerhouse in world cricket. I think having missing David Miller, missing Fulakweo as all-rounders, we talked about that B word and we've talked about it a lot tonight. The balance of the South African side, for various reasons, which we won't go into, has been affected tremendously, not least of which the missing of those two guys gives their team a lot more punch and gives them a lot more firepower. But I like Lindy, I like Shamsi, I think they've performed pretty well, but everyone else I think has been below par if they look back on their own performances. Yeah, look, absolutely. And they've been hindered in the warm-up. I, I think it was obviously really important for them to get this series on um, to not not necessarily even to paper over the cracks of what's going on off the field, but also from a revenue perspective, it's, you know, their home series. They gave up the run of the hotel to the England team to make sure that there wasn't that risk of any um, COVID transmission. There was a couple of um, positive tests around that South African camp. Border, you touched up on it as well. Peth Lequeu, a, a, a big miss for them, actually. I was really impressed uh, with him the last time I saw him as well. And, you know, his illness probably hasn't helped um, that situation. But yeah, it's one of those things, and we talked about a little bit with Coley in the three-format piece. 
you can't expect a guy like De Kock to be backing up in three formats, franchise tournaments, captaincy. I mean, if he gets to put his pads on when he's keeping, it's that bad. Um, so, you know, he, he's really under a lot of pressure. And yeah, you, you can't keep going back to the same uh, well over and over again. What are, so, given the way that South Africa is, you know, what what they've shown us so far, Binksy, what's going to be the pass mark for you now from an England point of view for the rest of this series? Do you have to win every game here? Are we playing any one days? <laughs> three of them. Three, three one days. Okay. Um, yeah, look, I, um, I, I just want to check my uh, check my stats. For, for, look, for me, I, I think... <laughs> Look, I don't want to. I don't want to be complacent from an England perspective. You know, we obviously hold the fifty over World Cup at the moment. We, you know, there's no doubt that we're trying to build a side towards that. And I think um, Owen Morgan's decision was very deliberate to stick around because he felt he could add some value to both the T20 um, and the ODI side, even if he doesn't quite get to 2023 for that next fifty over um, tournament. England qualifying for it, of course, permitting. Um, but I, I definitely think it's about the T20s at the moment. And I think what England will be wanting to do is just keep this momentum going um, towards those two tournaments. And as, as I've said as well, get those balance, uh, get those balances and get those actual contingency plans correct. If you look at it in that World Cup side, they were kind of lucky in a way, the emergence of... They were lucky in many ways, but you yeah. just carry on with your, your saying. <laughs> Yeah, they were they were lucky in in many ways. Just have a word with the engraver as to what he wrote, though. Um, but look, I think the the Hales incident could have derailed a lot of previous England campaigns or even campaigns of other nations where you're relying quite heavily on a player. They could almost just swap a guy in. Um, you know, you've got a guy who played in the side like David Willey for three or four years leading up. Archer becomes available. All of a sudden, that you know, there's not even an issue. That's what I think they're building for for the T20 World Cup. So for me, you know, they'd want to take the series 3-0 um, and then they'd want to win the one days as well. Of course they would. So I'm going to have a go at answering this question too. So I, I think that uh, from a T20 perspective, I'd give a big green tick on there. Uh, I wouldn't worry too much about the third third one in terms of, of what's going to happen. What I'm looking at now in the in the one day one day series is I want my batsmen to score runs, how they have been scoring runs. It's nothing different. But I really want to see my bowlers put the screws onto that South African batting lineup. It's it's not as deep as as it could be, and I really want to see them ram at home and win win some games with with a lot of space. And I'll give you a concise point as well because I am prone, obviously, to go on when it's talking about England. The spin thing is is an issue for me. Adil Rashid, uh, Adil Rashid, um, well documented shoulder problems. Moen Ali has lost form of late, so the cupboard is a little bit. Um, lacking, I think, for that one-day um, spinner backup. Um, you know, you've obviously got Moeen, um, but yeah, as I said, form a struggle for him. There isn't a na- another natural person uh, coming through. So all of a sudden, one injury, loss of form, India tournament. You've, you know, you've potentially got some problems in the spin ranks. Well, that just about wraps up this episode of the Top Order podcast. We've talked about the three. Um, major series going on all around the world. We've given a little shout out to the LPL as well. Covered a few bits of cricketing trivia in this week in cricket. Do step back into the back catalogue. Please also make sure you're taking a look at all of our social media feeds. You'll see where we're going to be around the country. Um, Covering some live cricket as well. 
um, throughout the course of the summer. But yeah, dip back into the back catalogue. You can find all the details of where we are going to be www.thetoporderpodcast.com and we're on all the social channels as well. And don't be shy uh, to get in touch on email as well for corrections and particularly around perhaps series scheduling. Um, Thetoporderpodcast at gmail.com is the best way to harangue us on email. But for now, that's it. We'll see you again next week. Thanks for listening.